are here in the sanctuary and those of you joining us online, we're so grateful that you're a part with us. Um, most of you would know that about uh, seven years ago, I began to uh, try to work out a bit and watch what I ate. And for the first time in my life, I began to actually read labels on food items. I don't know how many of you, how many, how many of you guys actually look at the labels? Some of you, yeah. I never did before because I didn't care. All I cared was that it tasted good and that it was filling, and that's all that it mattered to me. But as I began to read the labels, I noticed things like calories, but I also noticed there was a specific word that kept cropping up again and again, and it was the word substitute. For example, it might say something like this in terms of the ingredients, carob, and then in parentheses it would say chocolate substitute. Now, i got to tell you, because I love you, I'm going to tell you the truth. Carob is not chocolate. It is not now chocolate. It never has been chocolate. It's not even in the chocolate family. Carob actually comes... Did you know that carob comes from an evergreen tree? You're eating pine needles. <laughs> or, or it has this. It says aspartame. And then in parentheses... Sugar substitute. They don't tell you that it kills rats in experiments. And you know if it kills rats, it's going to kill you. I mean, the substitutes, substitutes. Um, the biggest one that's come up recently for me has been uh, Burger King has come up with a substitute. It's called the Garden Burger. There's no meat in it. But they still call it a burger. You and I both know that if God wanted burgers to be made of plants, He wouldn't have called them burgers. They're called hamburgers for a reason. They're made of ham and burgers. If you go to Tom Walls and the Walls Burger. Um, but the truth is, when I say the word substitute, what pops into your mind? Teachers. Teachers. Um, Substitute teachers are kind of like the Rodney Dangerfields of the academia world. They get no respect, and no respect at all. Um, to school principals, they're like heroes, though. These are guys that when a teacher calls in sick, the sub comes in, and it, somebody's got to take care of your little angels, of course. So the, the sub comes in, and she covers the class, or he covers the class, um, it was in middle school, in sixth grade. Um, in my English class, we suddenly noticed that we had somebody up front who was not our normal teacher. We had a substitute. Her name was Mrs. Raziri. She was a typical, short, dark-haired, Italian mother figure. Um, she wasn't like most of the subs we got. Most of the subs we got were like young kids that maybe were in college or something like that, and they needed a little extra money. But Mrs. Raziri was not like that. And I have to tell you, I say it to my own chagrin that I, I don't know what was wrong with me at the time, but I made it my life's job to become a challenge to her. Two weeks we had her as our sub. Two weeks for her of living hell. I, I was, this is, no, this is no exaggeration, I was so bad that I had this little Italian lady sitting at her desk crying, crying. I made a 
teacher cry. That was in sixth grade. Somehow, I graduated sixth grade and went into seventh grade. Can you guess who my English teacher was in seventh grade? <laughs> Mrs. Raziri. And as soon as I walked in, I knew she had to see my name and think, oh my word, a whole year of this. But the, the, the funny thing is, Mrs. Raziri became one of my favorite teachers of all time. I still remember her with great fondness. Our relationship developed and it deepened to a point where when I went into high school, away from middle school, when I went into high school, she would actually come to my concerts, to other events that I was involved with. She actually supported me as one of her former students. Um, all too often, substitutes are kind of looked at as being less than or not quite as good as. But that wasn't true with Mrs. Raziri, and it's not true of what we're going to be looking at today because sometimes the substitute is better than the original. Uh, we're in a series entitled The Famous Last Words of Christ, which are the seven statements that Jesus made upon the cross. The Bible tells us that Jesus hung on the cross. Do, do any of you know how long he hung on the cross? Six hours. Six hours, according to the Scripture, he hung on the cross. And the first three hours, he said three things which we have looked at over the last three weeks. He gave words of forgiveness, of assurance, and of love. And if you weren't here to hear those messages, they're available online, but I would encourage you to take a listen and to be able to be encouraged. But about the third hour, so this is from 9 until noon, about noon, something dramatically shifted in the time that Jesus hung on the cross. I'm reading from Matthew 27, if you want to turn there. Matthew 27 and verse 45, and it will be up on the screen for you. Now, from the sixth hour, that's about noon, until the ninth hour, that's about three o'clock, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The scripture says darkness settled over the land. The Greek word for darkness is the word skotos, which is most literally translated obscurity. God is obscuring what is happening on the cross. It's almost as if what is happening at Calvary that day is so heart-wrenching, so heartbreaking, that God didn't want anybody to look at it. And He caused darkness to cover all of the earth. And in those moments, the Scripture says, Jesus cried out. The word that's used there in the Greek doesn't mean it was some sort of um, fatalistic, exhausted muttering under His breath. He cried out loudly, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. In a way, uh, of all the words that Jesus spoke on the cross, this is the one that has killed me the most. This is the one that I find hardest to understand, hardest to grasp. We understand and are grateful for, Father, forgive them. We like that. We're grateful for it. We appreciate the word of, of assurance today you will be with me in paradise. And 
we're grateful for the word that Jesus commended to the church that love was to be our expression when he said to John, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. Making sure that even on a natural plane, his loved one was taken care of. And those messages have been given. But here, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that word literally means rejected or abandoned. It's, it's Jesus saying, Father, you have deserted me. Some of you here know something of the sting of rejection. Maybe for you, it was your parents who divorced at an early age and one or the other of your parents left and you rarely saw them again. Maybe for you, it was your spouse who after many years together decided they want a newer and better model and you were abandoned. Maybe for you, it's a friend who you tried to be close to, who you tried to be kind to, who exposed you in some way and hurt you in that vulnerable place in your own heart, betraying the trust that you had given them. I don't know if you've thought about it, but in Jesus' last days, he was abandoned by everyone. Started with the crowds. The crowds that had cheered him on and said, uh, come in the name of the Lord. That crowd abandoned him. The crowd that loved the food he provided and loved the miracles he performed. But they abandoned him. And then, his disciple, Judas, betrayed him. And in time, all of the other 11 also abandoned him and ran away. Now on the cross, it's even worse. He says, now, my own God, my Father, has abandoned me. And actually, um, I don't know if you've thought about it or not. I never have until this week. This is the first time that Jesus ever refers to God when he's speaking to God, not about God to his disciples, but this is the first time when Jesus is speaking to God that he doesn't call him Father. He says, my God, my God. Do you wonder why at all? Is it possible that in that moment, as all of your sin, your stinking rotten sin, which all of ours is, which put Him on the cross, is placed upon Jesus, and in that moment, there was a separation. For the first time in eternity, there was a separation between Father and Son. Jesus felt something that you and I feel often. You and I at times feel distant from God. We can go through moments in our day. We can go through a whole day without even thinking about God sometimes. We get up and we get going and we don't give God a thought. Jesus had never experienced that even once. He had never known that distance where he felt like he had to reintroduce himself to God. He had always felt the nearness and the intimacy of that loving relationship. And yet here, in this moment, he can't say, Father, he says, my God. What's going on in this fourth word? Well, in the fourth word, this is a word of substitution. Jesus became your substitute. The cry of his heart, of a broken heart, is the cry of substitution. It's here. 
that Jesus took your just punishment and mine, and he wore it. Think about it for a moment. And I mean that sincerely. Think for just one moment about your life. Look back over however many years you have. For some of you, it's maybe 20s, 30 years. Some of you, it's 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. Think back over your life. Think back over the stuff that you've done. Oh, we don't often like to go there. Think back over the lies you've told to get yourself out of trouble. Or maybe you've tried to sanitize it saying, well, I didn't want to hurt their feelings, so I told a little white lie. Think about the things you've taken. Maybe at work, taking advantage of your employer without you. Maybe even leaving a little early, no one will know, and you tell a friend to punch out for you because you have things you have to do. Think about stuff that you have done over the years, things you have said, the way you snapped at your spouse because he or she didn't understand you quickly enough. And all of that is the reason why Jesus had to hang on the cross. Because the Scripture is very clear. Ezekiel 18.20 The soul that sins shall surely die. The price had to be paid. And the only acceptable price determined by a just, righteous God, is death. And He hung not only for your sin, but for the sin of mankind. Think about what just 2020 has been like. Have you seen any sin out in the world? Have you seen anger and wrath and racism and slavery and murder, adultery, all treated like it's normal? What can you expect in a year like this? All of that. The sin of mankind, both up to that point and from that point until he comes back again, he bore all of that sin. And God, in his infinite love, said, I will pay your debt for you. 1 John 2.2 says this, He, Jesus, is the payment for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word payment actually is the word atonement. And it means payment for damages done. We see it in stores all the time. I don't know how many of you guys have ever gone into a store. like uh, we, we personally, my wife and I, like Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And we like to go visit some of the shops that are there with some of the unique items they have. And in the store, invariably somewhere, there's a sign that says, you break it, you... That's what this word atonement means. It means if there's something that's broken, there's got to be a price that's paid. Well, you and I were pretty broken. And a price had to be paid. See, that's what atonement does. It satisfies justice. Jesus' death. The death of the only completely perfect person who ever lived and walked this earth satisfied the Father's justice. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says this, for God took the sinless Christ and poured into Him our sins. Every single thing you've ever done wrong by commission or omission. Every single thought or deed that you would be horrified if anybody would know that that ever passed through your mind. Every single one of them, all of it, was poured on Christ. But Paul doesn't end the verse there. He goes on and says, Then in exchange, He poured God's goodness into us. 
That's what was going on right then on the cross when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This whole idea of substitution comes out of the fact that when there's been a breakage, when there's been a fault, a sin, a price has to be paid, and somebody has to pay it. And I'm here today to tell you, either you pay for it yourself, or you receive God's payment for your sin. This word, substitution, actually teaches us three things that I want to give you really quickly. Just three things that I personally got out of this as I looked at the text this week. Number one, it tells us that God is holy. It's almost ironic that we call this book right here, we call this book the Holy Bible. But I wonder, how often do we really treat this as holy? How many of you are actually doing a read through the Bible this year of some sort? Maybe not the whole Bible, but some sort. How many of you find yourself at times reading it and then afterwards realize, I don't even remember one thing I just read? Right? I mean, let's be honest. We all do it. You're reading it through. Sometimes I'm reading fast in order to get it done because i got something else I want to do. But we call it holy. Uh, We come to church and we treat our gatherings as if they're not holy, even though God says He hallows us our gatherings with His presence. Do you know that God is here right now? Do you know that God's presence is in the room? And yet we treat it as a light thing. Or when we come together as a church, we sing a song, like this song that I'm going to have them put up here for you. In fact, why don't you stand up with me? Go ahead, stand. I know. You're not used to this. It's all right. We don't do a cappella a lot because we have such an amazing worship team that actually hunts and tries to bring the presence of God to us. But this song goes like this, and if you know it, you can sing along with me. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 Merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Now this next verse is actually written surrounding the darkness that came upon the earth at the crucifixion. It goes like this. Holy, 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 Though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, Perfect in power, in love and purity. Thank you for singing with me. You may be seated. Revelation 4.8 says this, Holy, and just to be sure that you get the idea, he repeats it three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was he, he was. He was from the beginning. He was before time began and He was in the midst of time. He was. 
who was and who is. He is here today in our midst. He is still the living God. And who is to come. He's coming again. I know that a lot of churches don't believe that anymore. I think a lot of churches teach something quite different. But I have to tell you, I still believe the Bible that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for a bride that is perfect in every way. Not because we're perfect, but because He has put His perfection upon us. Holy doesn't mean He's sinless. I hope you know that, by the way. The word holy doesn't mean sinless. It means other than. He is so other than anything you have ever experienced, known, or could possibly know. But that's God. He's other than all of that. He's like no one else who ever was. Greek and Roman mythology has all these gods. Um, uh, what are they? Zeus. J- Jupiter. Apollos. Hermes. Uh, I can't remember them all, but they're out there. But one of the things that stood out to me, even as a kid reading Greek mythology in school, was that these Greek gods were frail beings. Think about it. They got angry and they would destroy people in their anger. They lusted and they had relations, even with human beings. Uh, they, They deceived people. They were fickle. They were moody. They were in many cases, no better than the humans to which they claim their Godhead from. But I'm here to tell you that God, the one true and living God, is not like that at all. He's not like you and I. He is holy. That's what we see at the cross, is God's holiness is on display. But because God is holy, sin and evil, wickedness, are all Anathema to him. Uh, Habakkuk 1.13, or you could say Habakkuk, says this, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. I don't know if you... Look at that again. This means we got a problem, folks. God is of purer eyes than to look on evil. You can't look at wickedness. Because you and I, if we're honest, we've got some evil wickedness in us at times. We've done some bad things. So we've got a real problem. I'm not perfect, and neither are you. I've done wrong. I've lied. I've stolen. I've done things that are just plain evil in my life. And so this holy, altogether perfect God demands payment for sin, and that payment is death. And the cross is the Father taking all of your sin and mine And he places it upon Jesus. And in that moment, the father, for the first time, could not look upon his son. Think about it. That's what your sin did. Your sin caused the father to no longer be able to look upon his son. There's an interesting verse in Exodus that I've never seen applied to this, but it does for me. Exodus 34, 6. We love this first portion of it. It says, the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And we love that, but we neglect the rest of the verse. It says, by no means clearing the guilty. In my mind's eye this week, I imagine God the Father saying in those moments, 
I will by no means clear the guilty. Not even for you, my son. The price has to be paid. And once the guilt of mankind is placed upon you, you too must die. Because that's the only fitting price. The first thing that the cross showed me was God is holy. The second thing is sin is ugly. Sin is ugly. We really don't think of it as being ugly. Uh, we're pretty sure some sins are ugly. You know, the big ones, like murder and adultery, those are ugly. We know that. But what about the little white lies? You know, those fibs? I like doing crossword pub puzzles. And one of our clues this week for the crossword puzzle that I was working on was a three-word answer. And the clue was white lies that don't matter. Fibs. Well, that's kind of how many of us treat sin. And we, yeah, everybody sins. We can't help it. Sometimes we're human beings after all. And we don't realize how ugly sin really is to God. We say they're just minor lapses in judgment. It, it was just momentary lust, and then I got beyond it. It was okay. You know, it doesn't count for anything. Um, I don't know how many of you have watched TV much. Some of you probably watch more than others, but one of the things I've noticed as I've watched TV is it doesn't matter what show you're watching or what commercial. In fact, I've gotten to the point that when I am watching shows that I've recorded most often, I actually mute and try to fast forward through all of the uh, commercials because it's in commercials as well, is that they treat sin so lightly. They treat sin as almost like it's something humorous. In fact, think about it. Isn't it true that some of the backdrop of funny comedies out there today surrounds a life of sin? Think about some of the things that are out there that we treat so lightly. Uh, we watch Saturday Night Live. Some of you do. You watch Saturday Night Live. And some of their skits are horrid. They're ethically and morally evil. But we find ourselves laughing. And I want to suggest to you, that's exactly, exactly what Satan wants to do. He wants to get us to a point where we laugh at what hung Jesus on the cross. I came across this uh, thing online, and it says this, You have become blind when you see nothing wrong with something God has called sin. You see nothing wrong. You even find it a little bit funny. God calls it sin. Satan disguises sin to make it look more desirable. Um, to make it look appealing, attractive, even normal. And yet, if you think about it, those things are the exact antithesis of the holiness of God. Even some of the Hallmark movies that I made myself watch with my wife this year. Some of those morals that are on those movies are pretty horrid. You got people hooking up and shacking up, and this is the hallmark feel good movies. Rarely on TV do you see the consequences of sin. I mean, think about it. How often on TV do you see marriages broken up and lives destroyed because of adultery? We watch people hanging out in bars 
drinking and laughing, having a good old time. Norm! Without thinking about the fact that what's going on back at home that you escape into the bars and not realize sin isn't attractive at all. It's ugly. We don't see the real soul damage done by words and attitudes. The truth is sin isn't innocent and it's not funny. It's ugly. It's what separated the Father from the Son that day upon the cross. The cross shows the devastation that sin causes. So the cross shows us God's holiness. It shows us the ugliness of sin. And thirdly, it shows us how how valuable God considers you. That He would pay such an extravagant price that our salvation is costly. Some years ago, many years ago now, two friends graduated from law school. And they began to practice law. And in time, one of the friends became a federal court judge. The other friend continued in his law practice, but unfortunately became addicted to crack cocaine. And his life began a downward spiral. He ultimately began to cook the books, ripping people off, taking their money for things he did not perform, until finally he was caught and he was brought to trial. And to everyone's amazement, his friend was the judge that day. And so the trial went through all of its steps over many days and weeks, and in time they finally had to come to a decision which they had left not to a jury but to the judge. And everyone knew because it had been proclaimed ahead of time that these men were friends together, that they had gone to law school together. And so everybody's wondering, what will the judge do now that you've heard all of the evidence? Finally, the verdict was given. He was found guilty. And his friend, the judge, the federal court judge, enacted the harshest penalty that was allowable under law with the biggest fine possible. And everybody gasped. They couldn't believe that he would have done this to his friend. But then this judge did something no one expected. He stood up from his seat. He took off his robes. He came down and he took all of the money out of his own bank account and paid for his friend's penalty. And that's really what happened on the cross for you and I. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and for mine. In order to fulfill the Father's righteous judgment, we were found guilty. There is none righteous, no, not one. We were found guilty. And the penalty is death. And He said, I will pay it myself. I will pay your penalty. The psalmist words it amazingly. It's one of the psalms that every time I read through the scriptures, I'm caught by this one. Psalm 85.10 says this, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When He was hung on the cross, He took upon Himself the curse for our wrongdoing. He who was, hear this, he who was the blessed one became cursed for you. So what should our response be? We've seen the holiness of God. We've seen the ugliness of sin and the costliness of our salvation. What should our response be? Number one, 
we should turn from our sin and trust in Jesus for our salvation. Trust the price that He has paid. You don't have to keep trying to pay the price yourself. None of your good works can add up to pay for the wrong you've done. God has determined that the only acceptable penalty for your sin is death. All of your works isn't going to be enough. I play a little bit of basketball. And when I say a little bit, I mean a little bit. Uh, the guys laugh. They know I've got like two or three spots on the court. That I run to those spots, I stand there and I say, pass me the ball. because that's, well, that's all I can do. I can't jump. I can't do much of anything. You put me against Michael Jordan, it's hard for me to say white men jump compared to all Michael Jordan. But that's what we do. We do that. We do our good works. We say, well, yeah, now I'm no longer addicted. I'm no longer breaking into houses. I'm no longer killing people. I'm better. I'm actually doing nice things. It doesn't make up for what you did. The only acceptable price is death. You either accept the price he's already paid for your sin, or you will pay for your own sin. Romans 3.22 says this, We are made right with God we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. No matter who you are or what you've done. If you will put your faith in Jesus Christ, the price has been paid for you. You don't have to keep carrying the burden of your guilt and shame. It's been paid. The second thing, we should live in a constant state of awful Gratitude. And notice I've separated the words on purpose. I should have kept them together because that's what the word actually means. But we've made it something negative. It's supposed to be something that creates us to be full of awe. You ought to be full of awe that God would be willing to do so much for you. Are you grateful today for the value that God has placed upon your life? That He would be willing to send His Son to the cross for you? And that ought to be something that you live with daily, not just on Easter Sunday. Romans 5.11 says, So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ made us friends of God. Third thing, when tempted, remember what our sins cost Jesus. And when I talk about tempted, and I'm not just talking about like the temptations the enemy throws. I mean, even the temptation to quit, to give up, to go back to the old way. It's like when Peter says to his buddies, after Jesus' death, after he had appeared to them, Peter still says, I'm going back fishing. I'm going back to what I know. The temptation to give up faith. To give up hope in God. There's not a one of you sitting in this room, if you're honest, don't have flashing thoughts go through your mind at times and say, is this even real? Have I just made all this up? Do I believe something? No. Faith means we keep our hope and our trust in Him. Even when the enemy tempts us otherwise. 1 Peter 1.18 says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from that empty life you inherited from your ancestors. The ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And then the fourth thing we should do is tell others the good news. If you believe that what God has done for you is good, you ought to be telling everybody around you this good news of what God has done for you. I'm not talking about becoming a Bible thumper, hitting people over the head, treating God's Word, God's holy Word as a weapon. I'm talking about telling people what God has done for you. I'm not as smart as a lot of people. 
I mean, there are people out there that are brilliant that could argue me under the table when it comes to the things of God. Theologically, even though they're unbelievers, theologically they know more than I do. But they can't take away what I've experienced with God. What He has done for me. That I know His presence. That I have felt Him. I've heard His voice. And we ought to tell others about it. So, my God, my God, why hast Thou abandoned, forsaken, rejected, deserted me? That's what this is about. He did it because He bore your sin. And in those moments, the Father could no longer countenance the looking at His Son. Would you bow your heads with me? Why don't you just take a moment, bow your hearts and heads before this amazing God who took your place on the cross. Think about what we're dealing with. At Calvary, life died. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. At Calvary, life itself died. Good was defeated by evil. Righteousness became sin. Light was overcome by darkness. God became God forsaken. All because of our sin and God's passionate love for us. All of that's true at Calvary, but there's more that went on behind the scenes. What looked to the world like evil had beaten goodness. They had no idea what they were dealing with. Life died and all life came back in its fullness and gave life to you and I. Goodness came back and put His good righteousness in you. He was cursed so that we would be eternally blessed. The substitutionary work of Christ deserves our highest gratitude and devotion. 1 Peter 3.18 says, God did all of this that he might bring us to God. That's why Jesus did it. So I want to just to take a moment and I want to ask you honestly, doesn't matter what the people next to you think or how long you've been coming to church or any of that. What matters is the truth. And my question to you this morning is, do you know God? Do you have a relationship with Him? Have you entered into His heart for you? And if you have, that's the best news on this entire planet today. Forget all the rest of the five, six o'clock news. Your news is the best news of the day. That I am redeemed. I have been saved. I've been washed clean. If you're here today and you don't know God, you can because He paid the penalty for your sins so that you could know relationship with Him. That's what He offers you today. It means becoming a follower of Jesus, a disciple one who pursues him for the rest of your life. That's what this is about.
So, Father, today I pray in Jesus' name. In the strong, mighty name of Jesus Christ. I pray to you, O Holy Father, that you would go deep into hearts. And for those that don't know you, they would make the decision today to follow hard after you. They would come to the point of saying, I know that I am deserving of judgment, but I received the payment that Jesus made for me. I received that today. And by faith, I am going to be the disciple of the living God. And for those that do know you already, I pray, God, that we would live our lives every day grateful for what you have done for us. The price you paid, the love that you have for us, that you would pay such an extravagant price. We thank you, Father, for your great love for us, for mankind, but for those who believe on your name. Let it become a reality in all of our hearts today that when we come together on Sunday mornings like this and we sing your praises, there would be something in us that would erupt in praise, in joy, in gratitude. I pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless each of you. Uh, if perhaps you're new here, you don't know, we don't take up an offering. We actually have offering boxes on the wall. So if you choose to give, they're there for you. Uh, I'm going to ask again that as you leave, you put your mask back on to protect those around you. And don't forget to get your kids, okay? God bless you. Have a great rest of your day.